Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16, and we're just going to read the first half of this story this morning, and then the next three weeks we're going to keep going with this portion. But we're going to start Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. May God bless the reading of his word. We're going to stop there for this week and we'll we'll keep going in the weeks weeks to come. Here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to go through those verses, show you what they mean, the big ideas in those verses, and then we're going to step back from it at the end and we're going to say, what can we understand from Athens that helps us better understand America in the 21st century? And then what do we understand about Paul's actions there in Athens and how that impacts the way that we live as Christians in the 21st century? What does it mean to talk about Jesus in the type of pluralistic culture that we live in? Should we even talk about Jesus? Isn't that arrogant? Isn't that trying to proselytize? Does that even have a place in modern day life? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're here with family members or friends and you're curious about the Lord, you might be thinking, man, this is going to be awkward. I'm going to listen to him tell them how to talk to me about Jesus. Yes, that could feel awkward. I, I acknowledge that. But what I, hope, what I hope happens is that as a result of that, that you would have a better understanding about what Christianity is all about. And beyond that, to know that Acts 17 has probably been one of the most famous, if not the most famous passage in the New Testament for non-Christians to engage with, to understand what's going on. What, what is, why does Christianity even matter? And if you're here as a Christian, that God would use his word this morning to equip you and inspire you to live out the life that he's called us to live. So let's jump right into it. Verse 16, look how it starts here. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Acts 17 takes place in what is often called Paul's second missionary journey. Paul was someone who was completely opposed to Christianity. He opposed everything about the way of Jesus. But then he became a follower of Jesus and he went throughout the ancient Roman Empire, starting churches, spreading the good news of Christ, establishing all these different Christian communities. And he would do it on these journeys as he would kind of go back through the same areas and then progress further west. Acts 17 is in the middle of what's called the second missionary journey. If you see up here on the screen, 
On the right side, upper right side of the screen is modern day Turkey, western what was called Asia or Asia Minor. Previously, we were going through the book of Revelation in chapters two and three, and all of those churches were situated in that area. Paul, though, at Acts chapter 16, receives this vision where he begins to move west into Europe. So he goes up to an area called Thessalonica, and then he gets run out of a couple of towns, and ultimately, he's sent down to Athens. Now, Athens is obviously one of the most famous cities in the ancient world. It's the city of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. It was probably the most prominent city for intellectual, cultural, economic things that happened in the ancient world. By the time you get to Paul showing up in Athens, it's not quite the city that it once was, but it still symbolizes so much about the ancient world for culture, um, architecture especially. It's a prominent city. And Paul goes in there, and what stands out to him more than anything is it says he was provoked, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. There were some accounts, and this is probably hyperbole, but some people said that Athens had more idols than it did people. It was a city that was full of these pagan gods, full of these temples and these altars all around. And it says that Paul's spirit was provoked. The word provoked means to have a deep emotional distress because of something. Something about the situation really tore Paul up inside. There's a lesson here for us that it is right and good and appropriate if you feel holy frustration, holy anger when you see people living opposed to the ways of God. It says here that Paul's spirit was provoked when he saw all these idols. But notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't become irate, he doesn't become destructive, he doesn't start yelling and screaming, he doesn't withdraw from society. When he was provoked, when he saw these idols, he just engaged with the situation. Didn't draw away, didn't become irrational, he engaged with the situation. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. That word reasoned is is really key here. Paul is appealing not just to emotion, he's appealing to their minds. He has an argument to set forth, he has a case to be made, and the word behind reason is the word for dialogue. There's some sort of give and take. Paul makes his case, he reasons with them, he hears back. We live in a world where arguing has a very negative connotation. When we think of arguing, we think of preachers or politicians yelling at each other. Whoever yells the loudest on TV is heard. It's all about this very intense type of arguing. Most of you, when you think about arguing, you think about sibling relationships in your family. Very rarely do you hear your kids arguing and you go into the room and one of them looks at you and says, oh, mom, mom, don't worry. We were just having a reasoned debate about the possession of this toy. I was making my case, my sibling was making their case. It was well thought out. That's not how arguing happens in our house. (laughs) Arguing in our house usually involves yelling and screaming. It's not reasoned debate. But this is what's happening here. In, In the history of persuasion, There was a guy named Aristotle who was actually trained in Athens and then ended up being one of the teachers for Alexander the Great in the ancient world. And and he would talk, uh, Aristotle would talk about when you were persuading someone, you would use emotion 
or, or pathos. You would use your personal integrity and character, your ethos, but then you would also use reason, logos. Pathos, ethos, logos were Aristotle's idea about how you made a case, how you persuaded someone. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's coming to them and he's reasoning with them, wanting to tell them about the things of Jesus. And it says that he went first, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. This is how Paul, this was his MO. He would go to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He reasoned in the synagogues. But then it says he would reason in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The word behind marketplace is the word agora. If you've ever studied ancient city planning or ancient architecture, the agora in Greek city planning was the public square in the middle. Most translations of the Bible will translate this word marketplace. Uh, if you're reading out of the New Living Translation, it will translate it public square. Uh, small rabbit trail here, but if you're looking for a translation that's easy to read or you're looking for a Bible for your kids to be able to get into reading as they're learning to read, the New Living Translation is a good option, easy to understand, stay, does a good job. No translation's perfect, but if you're just kind of looking for a way to get started reading the Bible, New Living Translation will translate the word agora as public square. And that's what it was. It was a gathering place. The Agora was a gathering place where people would do business. There would be political conversations that would go on. Men would come to find day laborers. Kids would play in this area. You came to form social connections at the Agora, at the public square. It's hard to find a modern day equivalent for the Agora. There was a time in America where the church building functioned as the gathering place. If you grew up in a small town, the local public school was kind of the agora where you would come together. If you were a child of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the local mall was the agora where you would gather together to uh, do business, form relationships, have conversations. The, the mall was that. Do you know what the best modern equivalent probably is? And this breaks my heart. It's probably the internet. Social media, that is the modern day agora. Think about where people gather to do business, form relationships, have debates, find workers, kids play. Really the modern day agora is, is internet, social media where people gather and Paul goes right in the middle of it. He's in a city full of idols, he's bothered by what he sees, but he doesn't run away, he goes right into the heart of it. He goes to the agora and it says in verse, 19, or verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him. There was these philosophers who would go around the area sharing their ideas about how to have a good life, how to avoid fear, how to deal with suffering. The Epicureans and the Stoics came from completely different sides of how this was to be done. They had completely different views about God, about how to live out the good life, but they wanted to hear from Paul. Paul met them and he conversed with them. He had a conversation with them about how to live a good life, how to deal with suffering, how to deal with fear. It says there that there were also some who said, what does this babbler wish to say? Some of the people just saw Paul as a babbler. A babbler, the image behind it is of a bird pecking at seed on the ground, like you'd grab something here and you'd go over here and grab something here and grab something here. They think Paul's argument has no substance. He's just jumping around, picking up things to make himself look good. He's just a babbler. End of verse 18, others said, 
He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Remember, this area, Athens, is full of these different idols, full of these different gods. When they heard Paul talking about Jesus and resurrection, they thought he was introducing two new gods to them, one named Jesus and one named resurrection. To them, it was just something else to add on to their list of gods. He's just introducing these foreign divinities. The fascinating thing about Acts chapter 17 here is the charge that is made against Paul of introducing strange divinities, introducing strange ideas. It's almost the exact same charge that was made against Socrates. Remember that Athens is the history here of of Socrates and Plato. In Plato's Apologies, he's talking about Socrates on trial. This charge that was made up against Socrates, but he was introducing new ideas, dangerous new ideas to the young people in the area. And Luke is doing something in the book of Acts here where it looks like the same charge is being made against Paul that he's introducing strange new ideas to the people there. It says in verse 20, or verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange ideas to our ears. The Areopagus was a hill there in Athens where one of the main governing bodies would gather. It was a governing body that would make decisions for the city that sometimes would do legislation, but they would gather on this hill called the Areopagus. Ares is the Greek god of war. The Roman equivalent to Ares is Mars. The Roman god of war was Mars, and so sometimes you'll hear the Areopagus called Mars Hill. This is a picture that you, can, you could go Anybody ever been to Athens out of curiosity? All right, we got a few takers. Actually, more than I imagined. That's pretty awesome. Um, You go to Athens. The area behind this hill is where the Agora would have been located. This Areopagus is where this governing body would meet. If you've ever seen a picture of uh, Athens, you've probably seen the Acropolis that would sit kind of our direction from this hill if you were looking, looking at Athens. But they would gather here on this hill Paul in this situation is probably not being put on a formal trial. They just want to hear from him about what he's presenting. What is this idea that he's bringing to them? Luke would always put Paul in front of these governing bodies to explain who Jesus is. Why do they care, though? Why do they even care what Paul is talking about? Verse 20, you bring some strange ideas to our ears. We wish to know what these mean. Verse 21 All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, does that sound like a culture that you know anything about? They would spend all their time talking about things that were new. Who needs classical literature when you have to scroll really fast to keep up with Facebook and Twitter? Who needs classic art when you have Instagram and Snapchat? We live in a world where we want everything that is immediate, everything that is new. We never talk about what happened in the past. You know, this is one of the glories of social media. If anything ever goes wrong to you on social media, you just hang out for a couple of days and it's so far in the past that nobody can ever find it and you just move on to whatever's new. It's always about what's new. This is the culture that they lived in. All they wanted to do was talk about new ideas. So verse 22, Paul stands up in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive 
that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, as he saw these idols, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. This seems to be the idea that they were so worried about leaving out a possible God or making a God angry that they didn't know anything about that in order to cover their basis, they just had one final idol that said to the unknown God. If there's another God out there, one that we don't know about, we're gonna give an idol to that God. Now Paul hears this and it's a fastball right down the middle. The fish are in the barrel, the baby has the candy, He can't mess this up. Like this is, Paul's eyes are huge at this moment. This is the best thing that could have ever happened to him at this moment because he says at the end of verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He is going to tell them, you have this idol to an unknown God, guess what? I know that God and I'm going to proclaim that God to you. And what happens is in the speech that we're gonna look at over the next three weeks, Paul gives this explanation, this proclamation of who this unknown God is, and he begins to explain to them and proclaim to them who Jesus is. That we exist as a church at Emmaus to proclaim and display Jesus. How do you do that? Paul shows us here in Acts chapter 17. And so as we prepare for that, what I want us to do this morning is on the back of your bulletin, if you have a copy of the bulletin, there's some notes that you can look at that might be uh, of help. But I want us to ask the question, just looking at the first part of the story, what do we learn, what do we learn from ancient Athens about what it means to live in a pluralistic culture in modern day America and then how can we live in light of those lessons? Now, I've used the word pluralism uh, a couple of times, and I want to stop just for a second to, to define that. And I think I've mentioned this before, but if I haven't, I, I want to say this. If I ever use a word that you don't understand or I don't do a good job explaining, sometimes church people are really bad about using big words that we really don't know what they mean, but we use them because we sound good. If I ever do that, let me know. Send me an email. Say, hey, Owen, you used this word. I don't know what it meant. Could you let me know? The word pluralism is a word that's usually connected with philosophy or politics. Uh, it's the idea, it obviously comes from the root, wor- the root word plural, so many. It's the idea of there are many valid options. The worst thing that could ever happen in a pluralistic culture is for someone to come along and say there's one truth, there's one way there's one story that makes sense of reality. In pluralism, there are multiple ways. There are multiple ideas. There's even a way of talking about multiple truths. Each culture has its own idea about what is true and good and right, and all of those exist exist simultaneously, and no one should come along and say there's one way, one truth, one God. Pluralism ruled the day in ancient Athens and you don't need me to tell you that pluralism rules the day in 21st century America. The culture that Paul was engaging in Athens is the culture in which we live today. And a pluralistic culture is defined by three things. And because I love you, they all start with the letter I. Uh, This was so much fun when I started typing this out this week and I realized, oh man, they all start with I. They're gonna love it or hate it, one of the two. 
how do you understand a pluralistic culture? What does it mean to live in ancient Athens? What does it mean to live in modern day America? The first thing is idols. It's said back in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, he saw all these idols around. Verse 23, he talks about seeing all of their objects of worship. In a pluralistic culture, that culture is going to be full of idols. People are seeking after, they are worshiping something that is man-made, something that has to do with the things of this world, seeking after a good life by seeking after something that comes from this world. It's gonna be full of different idols because no one can say my idol is perfect because it's man-made. Somebody over here in this culture can make their idol and say, no, no, my idol should be worshiped. And this other person says, no, my idol should be worshiped. People seek after and give themselves to different idols in a pluralistic culture. And we live in that world now. We live in a world in which people are seeking constantly to find the good life. They're trying to avoid suffering. They're trying to avoid fear. They're seeking after something that they can worship and hold on to. And they'll seek here and they'll seek there and they'll seek everywhere except seeking after the one true God. Because in a pluralistic society, it's built on idols not the idea of a one true God who makes heaven and earth. So the first thing is idols. The second thing is ideas. A pluralistic culture feeds off ideas. Ideas, in this case, are the opposite of revelation. Now, not revelation, the book at the end of the New Testament, but, but revelation in the sense of this. There are two ways that we can know something about God. Either God reveals himself to us or humans have ideas about who God might be. Those are the only two ways that someone can know something about a God. Either that God has revealed himself, shown us as his creation who he is, or religion is all about human people making up ideas about who God might be. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're gonna say, yeah, you got it right on the second. Religion is just a man-made thing. It's just people trying to come up with ideas that make themselves feel better. Christianity, though, is based on the fact that God has revealed himself. He has shown us who he is. Pluralism feeds off all of these different ideas, ideologies about how to have a good life. Christianity says God has made known to us who he is and how he's at work in the world. How he's at work in the world. Idols, ideas, and then interest is the third concept of a pluralistic culture. In a pluralistic culture, people are interested in talking about spiritual things. This is kind of shocking sometimes to people. But even as our culture becomes more secular in a lot of ways, people often will still have spiritual conversations with you. They're still open to talking about religion. Teenagers, as you guys get ready to go back to school, don't, don't miss what an incredible open door this is. People will have spiritual conversations with you because we live in a pluralistic culture where there are all these idols, all these ideas, all this interest, but there's a big difference between being interested in spiritual conversations and making a commitment to worship one God. Look at this quote from a man named Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson says, it is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Many people are interested in spiritual things, 
We live in a world that is fascinated by spiritual therapy, spiritual healing, spiritual gurus. People are interested in spiritual things, but when the message of Christianity is die to yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me, that's a hard word, because that is says it's not just about being interested in Jesus, it's about giving myself to him. Idols, ideas, interests. The problem with all of those in pluralism is they will leave us never satisfied. We will never, we're always seeking. With an idol, you're always wondering, do I have the right one? With an idea, you always wanna hear the next one. With interest, you're always looking for something else. In a pluralistic society, and don't miss this because this is key to Paul, but this is even more of the world in which we live in. In a pluralistic society, people will always be seeking for the next thing. They're always looking for something to give them happiness. They're always looking for something to give them joy. They're always looking for the next thing. And the message of Christianity is we know what you're looking for. We have the message. We have the one who will satisfy your soul in a way that no idol or idea or interest ever could. You're seeking after Jesus Christ. So how does Paul engage with this type of culture? What does he do? There are three things we learn from Paul about how to live in this type of culture. The first is that Paul met people where they were. In a pluralistic culture, you have to meet people where they are. Paul goes to the synagogue, he goes to the marketplace, he goes to the Areopagus, he goes to where people are and he meets them on their ground. There's an important word here for us as a church. If we're not careful, as good church people, our way of engaging a pluralistic culture is, if you'll come to our church, then we'll talk to you about spiritual things, or then you'll be able to hear the gospel. And so it becomes a come to us in order to know Jesus. But Paul's method, Paul's approach, and this was Jesus' message as well, is go and tell. It's not just come and see, but it's go and tell. As a church, we never want to say to somebody, if you can get to us, then we'll tell you about Jesus. We want to say, whatever it takes, we'll get to you. We will meet you on your ground. We'll come to where you are. We will engage you. Paul is not engaging his culture in this some sort of yelling, writing blog post from his parents' basement. He's not coming at it that way. He's saying, I'm going to come to you on your ground. I'm going to meet you right where you are. Because the opposite of that is when it becomes a come and see, church starts to feel like a project, it starts to feel like a product, it starts to feel like consumerism, whoever has the best show in town, people will go to that church. If we're not careful though, we end up messing up the message of Jesus Christ, which is go and tell, go and engage people right where they are. The second thing Paul does is he keeps his eyes and ears open. He looks around the city, he sees what's going on, he listens to what people are dealing with. Remember, he's not just giving monologues. He's conversing, he's dialoguing, he's reasoning with them. He keeps his eyes open and his ears open so that he's able to meet them right where they are. Not to change the message, not to change the gospel, but in order to show the people how the gospel meets them right where they are. Sometimes as Christians, and I'm as guilty of this as a pastor as anybody, sometimes as Christians, we end up answering questions that nobody's asking, uh, or we provide programs and services that nobody needs, what God's telling us is just open your eyes. 
Look at your neighborhood. Look at your community. Listen to people. Don't just be the religious person who shows up at their door with a message. Listen to them. What are they dealing with? What are they facing in life? What questions are they asking? And then you're able to say, this is how the good news of Jesus Christ meets you right where you are. Paul went to people where people were. He looked around and he listened to them. Teenagers, elementary kids going to school, you guys can do this. Go to where people are, pay attention to what you see, listen to what people are talking about, and then respond with the good news of Jesus Christ. We meet people right where they are. We say at Emmaus that we want to meet people where we live, learn, work, and play. Where we live, where we learn, where we work, and where we play is where God has placed us to engage our culture with the good news of Jesus Christ. And then finally and most importantly, what Paul does is he shows what makes Christianity distinct. He gets to this point of engaging the culture, and it's no good to get to this point and then just have this vague spiritual conversation. He gets to this point, and he says, I'm going to proclaim to you who this unknown God is, and begins to share the good news of Jesus with him. What we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to break down in detail how Paul shares the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And what we're going to do as we, or what we're going to use as we do that is what is sometimes called the three circles model of presenting the good news of Jesus. On your notes, there's a website that you can visit if you want to download an app on your smartphone of this evangelism, of this good news message. Up on the screen is, uh, is a picture that explains how this works. And if you notice on stage, we have circles that correspond to the circles that you see up there on the screen. Here's how this message, here's how this model shares the good news of Jesus. Up in the top left, it says God's design. This is the idea that God is the creator of all things and he is the revealer of all truth. Everything good comes from God. He is God and we are not. Everything begins with him. He is designed for the world and he has a design for our lives to bring glory to him. When we move away from God's design, when we move away from God, that's called sin. Sin is the arrow moving out to the right and sin always leads to brokenness. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin always leads to death, brokenness. You look around in the world in which we live, it doesn't take a religious person to tell you that the world is broken, that something is wrong. Relationships are broken, government is broken, just about every element of our lives we find brokenness in. Every one of us faces the reality of death. When we move away from God, the wages of sin is death, it's brokenness. And people try to escape their brokenness in so many different ways. All those squiggly lines running out to the side represent different ways that people try to deal with brokenness in the world. That's pluralism on display at that point. They have idols, they have ideas, they have interests, they want to have a good life, they want to escape pain, they just don't know how. The arrow pointing back to the left says, repent and believe. The only way that we are able to escape brokenness and death is when we repent and we believe in Jesus Christ. Gospel, the word gospel at the bottom means good news. It's the good news that Jesus has defeated sin, he's defeated death, and through him we have life. 
And when we experience the gospel, this is the part that we sometimes miss. There's a final arrow that moves back up to God's design. We are able through the power of Jesus Christ to live out the life that God created us to live. This is the good news. You're not just saved just to be saved and say, wow, I'm a Christian, and you're not. You're saved so that then your life is transformed and you live out God's design for your life. We see God's design for the world. We see his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And this circle, this model, what I love about it is it matches the speech that Paul gives here on Mars Hill. It matches the way that Paul lays out the message of Scripture. I hope that this is something that's useful to you. I hope it's something that you'll use. If you're with someone at a business lunch and they ask you, hey, what do you believe about Jesus? It takes a pen, a napkin, three circles, and three arrows to tell someone this is what Jesus is all about. When you're at school and you're doodling all over your notebook because you're not paying attention, three circles, three arrows to show someone this is what the message of Jesus Christ is about. This is what it means to follow after Jesus. This is something we're gonna continue to come back around to. It's not the only way to tell somebody about Jesus, but it's something that's simple, it's powerful, it's beautiful, it's been helpful in my life, and it's something that I hope will be helpful in your life. As we get ready to wrap up this morning, let me ask you two questions. Two questions. Have you experienced this in your life? In other words, where, where do you find yourself on this picture? If you're here this morning and you're facing brokenness in life and you haven't known where to turn and you've been frustrated with religion, you've tried different ideas, you haven't known where to turn, I want to tell you that there is hope that there is good news that comes through Jesus Christ. And it's not good news that's found on a graphic on a screen. It's good news that Andrew showed you takes place in your heart. When Jesus takes away all of our sin and he gives us his life so that we're able to live in freedom and hope. And if you've experienced that, let me ask you a more difficult question. Who this week can you share that hope with? Who this week can you share with in the middle of a pluralistic culture that's full of idols and ideas and interest about spirituality? How can you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in that culture? I'm gonna pray for us. After I do, David's gonna lead us in two psalms that have to do with sharing the good news of Jesus. During the second psalm, he's gonna give you a chance to sit back down and we're gonna have the offering during that second psalm. But use both of these psalms as an opportunity to respond to how God's at work in your life. If you need someone to pray with you, I'm gonna be up here at the front and Jim and I would love to be able to pray with you during this time. Father, we thank you that in a way that I never planned months ago that we would study about Paul at Athens on the same week that the Olympics begin. God, that's such a, such a neat picture of what it means to live as Christians in the 21st century and to think about how you were at work in first century Athens and how we can learn so much from the story. And God, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers. God, that you would use our lives and our families in this church not to tell people to come here and then they can find out about Jesus, but that we would go and meet them right where they are. Father, would you work in our lives in a way that only you can do? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.